What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Fan Jackson. My guest today is a fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's a PhD candidate at Michigan State, and he covers a really important beat that doesn't get enough shine in foreign policy, which is the relationship between the Black American experience and international politics through U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and he's got uh, a great new publication out with Carnegie that we're going to talk about today called How Black Americans Feel About the Possible Use of Military Force in Ukraine and Taiwan. Very timely. Uh, he's also got a, a separate new publication out uh, that I think we're also going to hit called How Black Americans Feel About the War on Terror. And these two things are obviously um, related. And the data at the core of the research is a survey that we're going to talk about. My guest is, of course, the one and all. Well, there may be more than one Christopher Shell, but this is our Christopher Shell. So welcome to the show, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Van. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Loving my research that I'm doing at the Carnegie Endowment. And I think it's pertinent in this day and age. Um, just one slight correction. I actually finished my PhD at Michigan State in May of 2022. So. Oh, congratulations. And I wish I was up to date. So <laughs> cool. All right. Well, congratulations, doctor. All right. So at the outset here, it's probably worth giving some context on the history of Black America's relationship to U.S. foreign policy, because it hasn't been a static thing. And at times it's been really um, fraught. So I wonder if you could just offer a kind of quick narrative introduction to how black people have related to America's role in the world over time, good, bad, ugly? Yes, and that's a really good question. And you're right, it's not static. There've been various streams of thought in terms of how African-Americans think about how African-Americans draw connections to and um, relate to um, international developments. Um, primarily, you know, like for the sake of the podcast, starting about in the post-emancipation period. So after 1865, um, one of the first inflection points that we see is when the U.S. gives Haiti its diplomatic, well, they recognize Haiti's diplomatic status. You have Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, who was appointed ambassador to Haiti. And that's one moment in which African-Americans are thinking about U.S. foreign policy, um, especially to Haiti as a nation that represents the possibilities of Black self-governance. And we see that thread um, carry out through in, throughout the 20th century in, in which how African-Americans relate to um, what we would now call the global south, the developing world, primarily the non-aligned nations in the Cold War period, how African-Americans relate to the fight for decolonization, um, where you have uh, their presence at the Bandung Conference about Afro-Asian solidarity. Mm -hmm. But primarily... That's right. I'm sorry. I said that's right. Sorry, if I've remembered oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> it, hadn't for, it was an Afro-Asian Exactly, thing, yeah. yeah. You have African-Americans who are present there. You have um, a, a critical um, acknowledgement and interest in... Um, you know, communist thought, African-Americans like Du Bois, who made several trips to communist China, uh, Mao's China. You have um, even in the, up until the 80s, you have Jesse Jackson going to visit communist Cuba to go meet with Fidel Castro. You even have um, so a lot of interest in that. But if, if I could just even backtrack yeah. a bit and thinking about and which kind of informed my interest in asking this particular question about black Americans and the use of troops, you have. A, really, a very serious convergence of ideas when you have the U.S.'s use of military force abroad. So I would say primarily in both world wars, World War One and World War II, African-Americans saw this as a major point to prove their commitment to um, the U.S., uh, the American national project and to U.S. democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, you have African-Americans who argue that this isn't, these aren't our wars, that these, these wars are of, of no concern to ours, but there were still many who thought that we fight in these wars and we should, we can show that we can defeat and um, push back against notions of racial inferiority, but also argue that, hey, you know, if we serve in these wars, this may in some way translate to American democracy at home. Um, and we see another mm -hmm. inflection point with the, uh, the war in Vietnam. You have Martin Luther King's famous uh, Riverside Baptist Church uh, speech where he gives that speech of kind of condemning the war in Vietnam and making the argument about, you know, U.S. involvement in the war and human rights abuses, human rights violations. And there's also a concern about um, black soldiers who fight in these wars. So there's um, there's a long history of the of African-Americans and how they relate to U.S. foreign policy, and especially African-Americans role in the U.S. military. 
um, which kind of brings us to the Ukraine survey, even historically and even to this day, African-Americans have long looked to the U.S. military as a reprieve from a hostile, you know, domestic landscape. You know, serving in the U.S. military can in some way give you um, leverage or give African-American veterans leverage when it comes to home loans, benefits for education, um, some level of employment, mm. some uh, the ability to travel the world. So that kind of segues into the Ukraine survey before I get started, before I start digging into those results. Yeah, no, that's a good potted history or whatever. It's interesting how black critiques of America's role in the world, going back to like Du Bois, they don't just converge with anti-imperial or like subaltern thought from other places. Like black American thought has a is almost like disproportionately influential on like global anti-imperial yeah. thought. But then obviously like you said every black American is not anti-imperialist, yeah. right? There are plenty of African Americans who find an identity in the flag and in military service. And those people, they, they channel a sense of, of purpose. That's the same patriotism, I guess, as you know, the Arab American who works at the FBI or the Filipino who crews in the U S Navy during world war II. Like, and then there's, I think you mentioned this actually, like there's this, war as an opportunity for social mobility and economic mobility in like in certain ways world war ii and the korean war you know they were good for 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 black and brown people as a demographic it just didn't last long mm -hmm. actually that makes me wonder maybe you can yeah. answer this was there any point uh since reconstruction or since the civil war where black opinion about u.s foreign policy was was basically unified because what we described is like a lot of eclecticism, actually. <laughs> um, or was there any close to unification? I, I would say that's a really good point. Like, was there a point of, of you know, unity? I would say there's probably two particular points. And even even in that context, is it, is it fully unified? I think there's still some, you know, hmm. dissident views. But I would probably argue World War II, the double V campaign. I think there was a somewhat of a consensus that, you know, um, Jim Crow racism, even even scholars have argued the Jim Crow North, it was pervasive. Um, and African-Americans yeah. fought valiantly. I think close to a million African-Americans served in the U.S. military during the Second World War. And there was a push from both ends of the spectrum um, to ensure that, OK, we defeated, you know, this behemoth, you know, the insidious nature of Nazi Germany. But how can we then translate that back to the fight for democracy in the U.S. Now, I will argue, and I'm sure there's some pushback, but that was a moment of, you know, collective um, uh, a consensus amongst the population. And I would probably also mm -hmm. argue as well, um, perhaps during the Vietnam War period. I mean, the Vietnam War is also murky water because you had during the presidency of uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, many African-Americans who at first were, you know, supportive of the war in Vietnam because, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson had signed the Voting Rights Act. So he had made many strides, you know, when it came to, you know, um, uh, laws that were put into place for African-Americans to kind of, you know, I would put like a, you know, the cherry on top of the long civil rights movement. Um, and then you have this, you know, when data starts coming out about the African-American losses in Vietnam, primarily 1967 is like a peak period where Af it comes out that African-Americans are disproportionately being drafted forming, taking combat roles, um, and uh, uh, mm -hmm. playing a role in like combat deaths that you have like this growth. And then you, you also have the, the death of Martin Luther King in 68. Um, so you have a moment where African-Americans are like, hey, you know, what are we doing over there in Vietnam? And it also converges with the anti-war movement as well. So a lot of that's being fueled. It kind of creates somewhat of a consensus. And Martin Luther King was putting a spotlight too on how we were literally cutting anti-poverty programs to... Yes bankroll the vietnam war so it really was you know guns over butter exactly kind of thing. but yeah. i could just kind of just add on to what you were saying i mean you're right i mean when you when it comes to african americans who find a home in you know the the establishment or establishment organizations and really wear the american flag with pride you know you have like individuals like ralph bunch who was also you know an architect of the u.n yeah. he was well versed in colonial policy in many ways he sought a world that was free of colonies and imperial powers and racial hierarchies. Mm -hmm. um, but he even drew a lot of criticisms from, from some African-Americans like, you know, Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali, who found fault in, hey, you're, you're working with the system. You're, you're working with the man and you're furthering, you know, the the power of the United States, you know, political apparatus. 
Um, so yeah. I think you have you do have a consensus amongst African Americans of hey, colonialism is bad, racial hierarchies are bad, but I think the the differences in views and opinion kind of comes in where how do we go about ending this? How how do we go about deconstructing this? Yeah. What's your theory of change? Interesting. So maybe we can get to your survey now on uh, Ukraine and Taiwan. It's what just to give us a sense of the magnitude. What percentage of the population is African American? Like 10, 15, something in there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So I know the number is around forty million uh, people who who identify as African okay. American or Black, and then yeah, what does that translate to? About twelve percent of the population. And if it's I can... a huge voting block. I mean. That... <laughs> It's a very huge voting block. And some scholars have argued, and this kind of even ties back into the activism of the civil rights movement, much of African-American numbers were primarily just derived from those being born in the U.S. Um, with limited um, immigration playing a role because you had pre-1965, you had immigration laws that didn't really favor immigrants from uh, the Caribbean or from Africa, primarily if they were from, mm, you know, yeah. from Western Europe. And that's changed in recent years. And the post the 1965 you know, immigration law um, bill that was put into place allowed an influx of immigrants from black majority nations. So the number numbers have grown relatively in recent years, but it's about like 40, 42 million, I believe. Okay. It's certainly enough to, to decide an election result or sw- like push w- one way or the other. George is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, Georgia, <laughs> if you got a close call... <laughs> Tell, tell us about the survey. Like, what is the project that you're trying to get at? Like, what does this inform? Yeah, you're right. So the overarching project, um, I guess, research question that I'm undertaking at Carnegie is, you know, how have African-Americans been impacted by U.S. foreign policy? I think there's this prevailing notion that African-Americans are people who are bogged down with domestic issues, which is the case, you know, the lasting legacies of slavery, Jim Crow, you know, uh, structural racism. These are all very real. But I think the argument is I'm trying to make is that this does not keep African-Americans from being outwardly looking, from looking outward into the world and having critical thought about U.S. foreign policy, but also a group of people who um, have been impacted by U.S. foreign policy. Like the African-Americans are more than just the people who've been impacted by domestic policies, which I think we're all aware of. You know, there's tons of scholarship that talks about that. But um, a two-pronged project of how have African-Americans been impacted by U.S. foreign policy and what what are their thoughts on U.S. foreign policy? Which are not unrelated, obviously, yeah. I mean, or presumably, right? Okay. So the most surprising result in this survey for me mm-hmm. was how overwhelmingly favorably African-American respondents viewed the military in general. Yes. You want to talk about that? Like yeah. how party affiliation and age distinctions kind of shape attitudes toward the military? Of course, of course. And you're right. And, and I think... You know, if I could go back and redo it, I would kind of ask, you know, the kind of defining, how do we define favorable? Why? What about the U.S. military is favorable to my respondents? Um, But, um, you know, because there's favorable and in different aspects that I wish I teased out more. But an overwhelming percentage, more than 80 percent of my respondents had either very favorable or favorable views of the U.S. military, which I think speaks to the fact that African-Americans or the U.S. military in many ways earlier than most other institutions was an institution that was quote unquote progressive in integration under Truman. Uh, we yeah. also have the GI bill and, and also too, the military is one of the institutions where you really have to go off of merit. You know, when you're talking about um, people's lives that are at stake and you're talking about accomplishing uh, strategic aims, um, i.e. on the battlefield, you really have to go for, you know, who is good at their job. I think that's one place where African-Americans realize where if I'm good at my job, there's really no way that they can overlook me. I mean, you can still have that, but um, the battlefield has dire consequences if you are not going off of merit. Yeah, yeah. So I think that plays a role. I think there's that there's that historical legacy, but even contemporarily, you know, even now, I, I think I failed to mention the stat, but... um. Even to this day, that the military is like 70% African American. So even now, even with all the gains that we've made in affirmative action and trying to dismantle, you know, uh, structures that inhibit diversity and inclusion, African Americans have still seen that the U.S. military as a place where they can get college paid for, get away from, you know, impoverished neighborhoods and travel the world or see other parts of the country, and additionally. 
um, home ownership, you know, and I think that's a major goal that most of us have, you know, especially with the big cities being so expensive. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not black, but those, those are, those were all in the background of my motivations when I joined the military in the first place. Yeah. Like, I had none of that mobility, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's real. Um, yeah. yeah. I also don't know how to think about like, by its nature, militaries are some of the most like fascistic institutions in society, but it, there are ways in which the U.S. military in particular is progressive. And I think that's like a growing, it's becoming a more common argument that the military is, you know, lowercase p progressive. Yeah. And I don't there's something paradoxical about that. Like, how do you be hierarchical and fascistic and progressive? Like, what the fuck? I mean, if we're going to be honest, you know, um, I think it's it's kind of warped, but I think you know when it comes to maintaining empire, and when it comes to being a world power, you I think in many ways the progressivism is not out of some level of like altruism of we really see black people's humanity. I think it's really rooted in we need to maintain our vast empire. So instrumental, instrumental yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Interesting on the uh, the favorability about the military. Mm -hmm. Did you have numbers on like? Uh, party affiliation yes. and age distinctions and incomes and that kind of thing? Yes, yes, I, I tease that out. Um, so what was interesting, which wasn't surprising to me, was that the highest rate of for those who selected that they have unfavorable or very unfavorable views of the U.S. military was among mm -hmm. the um, youngest people in the survey. So people who would classify as like Gen Z, or millennials so essentially those born between like the 1970s the audience of this podcast <laughs> exactly and and i tease that out um I, I don't go into a lot of detail for the sake of word count but in my survey i tease it out and i make the argument that the younger generation regardless of race we've witnessed the war on terror and we also have th thanks to journalism we were aware of abu Ghraib, guantanamo bay predator mm -hmm. drone strikes and i will argue even though I, I would make the argument that world war ii wasn't the good war but uh, I would still make the argument that, you know, the prevailing notions of World War II being a good war um, of the older generations, there wasn't really as much critique. We have human rights violations on both sides you know, the Axis and the allies in, in these earlier wars. But then the notions, but, you know, and rightfully so, the, the hor horrific acts of the Axis, I think, outweigh a lot of what the allies conducted. So you have mm -hmm. these notions of, you know, we fought the good war. There's not much to be critical of of the U.S. military in the 19. Early, early to mid 20th century um, versus what yeah. we have now with the war on terror, where we have you know excellent journalism that kind of airs out a lot of the things that were being swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. but there's a higher level of think, disillusionment with the military as an institution. But if I may, I want also... to... No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I wanted to just touch on uh, demographics um, uh, when it comes yeah. to party affiliation. On both ends, Republicans and Democrats had very more than 80% view the military as very favorable. And I was attributed that to my earlier reasoning of African-Americans still seeing the military as a means of social mobility. Your explanation, too, of like why the younger generation would be more critical also makes a lot of sense. On the question of uh, sending troops to either Ukraine or Taiwan, how was the question worded? And then what was the, the finding? It was um, in February of 2021. Russia invaded um, Ukraine. Would you uh, would you support the poss possibly sending U.S. troops to to defend Ukraine? And it was like you know, if a war were to break out between China and Taiwan, would you support the possibility of sending troops to defend Taiwan? Something along those lines. I may have okay. Okay. butchered it a bit, but that was the question. And then there was another question. I didn't really include it in the survey, but it would be: Would you still support sending troops even if it meant thousands of casualties? Hmm. Okay. What, what, how did it pan out? What, what, what was the result? I mean, that was like one of the big things from the, uh, the piece that you published. Yes. Yeah. So only 20%, so about two in 10 respondents said that they wouldn't be in favor of sending troops to defend Ukraine and Taiwan. Um, and then when, once you threw in the aspect of a lot of casualties, the numbers went down even lower to like maybe like 16, 15%. Um, but what was interesting, two things were interesting about, so a slim majority for both questions, like I think one of them was like 50% and like 48% were no, like we would not support sending troops. But the don't knows are fairly high, almost about like a third, no, like maybe like a quarter of respondents said they don't know. Um, mm -hmm. And I attribute that to a lot of things, you know, um, 
individuals maybe just not really feeling like they're well-versed enough on the topic to have a decision or an answer on something as dire as sending troops to a war zone, you know, sending a mm -hmm. war zone. But that was interesting. And then going deeper, once I disaggregated the data, it was interesting. So um, uh, Republicans who are a small sample size, you know, I, I mentioned this in the article that African-Americans are almost monolithically Democratic, but there was some Republicans in the sample size and they were at what were they at? They were at like 30 some odd percent. Yes, they were maybe I think it was close to like 40 percent that they would be in favor of sending troops, whereas mm -hmm. black Democrats were at about 20 percent. But I even disaggregated amongst um, like uh, black ethnic groups. So I disaggregated amongst just those who are generationally African-American. So people who would have been in the country for generations, possibly descendants of American slaves um, versus those who are more recent black immigrants. Um, and there's a difference. So those who were either first generation or born in another country, but U.S. citizens, they were at about like 30% support for both wars. Hmm. But African American, well, Af those who were generationally African American were at about like 19%. So there's a difference amongst that as well. Income and education were a major thing. So those who made less than $50,000 were pretty low, like 20%. Those who are higher, but I think income over $80,000 were at like maybe like 20 some odd high 20s. And even for education, those who had were higher educated. So I'm talking like college, um, completed college and have an advanced degree were at about like 28, 29, 30%. But those who only had high school were a little bit lower, like 18%. So if you're economically insecure, you're probably quite a bit less likely to be supportive of foreign adventures generally yeah. but particularly ukraine and taiwan on the the question of the like the black republican or african-american republicans mm -hmm. they you said they were showing significantly higher hawkishness on these questions yeah. what i mean that's not totally shocking to me but mm -hmm. it makes me think of um should knight's theory of inclusion, or that's what I call it. I don't know if it's got a formal name in the literature, but Suge Knight for listeners, he founded Death Row Records, big gangster rap label. He was known for being ruthless, like an actual, actual gangster. And then when 9-11 happened, he didn't stop the gangster shit, but he was, he, he told journalists that like, we're supporting, we like Death Row Records, are supporting the USA. There's no ghetto, middle class, or rich. There's only the United States. And that's total horseshit. I mean, that's like waging class war via nationalism or something. But the comment exposed a divide in the hip hop community. A lot of conscious rappers were obviously speaking out against the war on terror and against Iraq war in particular. But Suge Knight, like when he says that, I see him seizing on patriotism like as a window of opportunity for societal inclusion after an extended period of like being on the margins or being oppressed and i guess the question is when you see higher levels of of, of black republican hawkishness what do you attribute that to like do you think that's the suge knight theory of inclusion at play or it's something else mm, that's a really good question i think there could be a level of yes the suge knight inclusion of uh, theory of inclusion. I think amongst a small segment of the African-American population, you do have those who do personally feel like, you know, let's let's move beyond race, we're just Americans. I think Pew Research even mm. conducted some interesting research about that and asking about questions about how do African-Americans feel like race has held them back? Do they feel like racism is still prevalent? And the, those who said no, like no, like, you know, we, we're pretty much in a post-racial society tend to be more um, to align with being Republican than being Democrat. So I think even within the African-American community, mm. there are different, even with, with the larger American community, there's um, those who identify with either Republican or Democratic Party tend to have different philosophies and worldviews. So going mm. back to trying to answer your question, I will actually say that we see the higher levels of, well, I will argue, um, support amongst Republicans because you do have the old, I guess now it's kind of changing. I think the left and the American right are rethinking the use of military force abroad. But I would say mm -hmm. probably pre-Trump and the turn inward, there, we do see the Republican side espouse a higher level of hawkishness. And I will argue that, the, that Black Republicans probably still align with that to a certain degree. And I would argue that there probably is a sentiment of, hey, 
we're, we're Americans. We're, I'm, I'm invested in the American national project. Mm-hmm. That not saying that African Americans who are Democratic may not espouse the American national project, but I think they're they are more keen to espouse a thought process of money spent abroad could be spent at home. You know, American imperialism is bad, or America needs to you know still have a, a global footprint, but one that is not predicated on military force and military intervention. Yeah, disaggregating that is going to be more important in the future, I think. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs, they're, they do this kind of polling as well, and they're very good. I'm sure you're very aware yeah. of it. Um, but they had a poll recently, and I don't know if it hit before you yours or after, mm-hmm. but it was about African-American views on Ukraine, yeah, and they they cited you in yeah. it. I mean, you got name-checked, so yeah. that's a good thing, I suppose. Give me my props. Can't be mad at that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But they showed an 11% gap on the question of um, the United States should support Ukraine for as long as it takes, even if American households have to pay higher gas and food prices as a consequence. So they were like general population, 58% said yes, support Ukraine as long as it takes. 49% of African Americans uh, agreed with that. And I think this question is kind of silly, or at least it's worded kind of silly. But I mean, do you think the I don't know if you're familiar with their survey, but like, do you think that they're telling a story with the data that's basically congruent with your own, or do you see like a gap there? Yeah, I think, and I saw that survey, and theirs came out right after mine, and I was happy to, you know, see that they you know, um, shout shouted me out in that survey. Recognize, yeah, <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. We like that. We like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that point in particular does speak to what I'm trying to say in my survey, because I, to a certain degree, I, I do rely on historical precedent. Um, I rely on like the scholarship that pulls from previous military conflicts that argues the, the concept of African-Americans being concerned about how are we spending our our money? Is, is our, our federal funds being spent on warmongering or federal spun, funds being spent on helping out the domestic situation? Um, and I'm working mm-hmm. on some other surveys that are trying to ask more points of questions to really tease that out versus me having to speculate and rely on, you know, old scholarship. But mm-hmm. I think that that in particular is a really interesting point because that really stood out to me because I would make the argument that, yes, African-Americans is not that African-Americans are entirely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I would say recluse or... Quote unquote isolationist. Yes, that's what, like, thank you. In air, in air quotes. Yeah. yeah, quote unquote isolationist. And I wouldn't make that argument. I would make the argument that African Americans do see the necessity of, you know, the US um, being involved in world affairs. But I think it really boils down to are we exercising an equal amount of attention and care and responsibility to international concerns as we are to domestic concerns? Then that's the main argument. So I think that's really what the story that was showing and i think that's what i will also argue as well yeah i have a sense i have an instinct that like the american public in general but like the black community in particular because they often have to eat shit more than others when we make bad choices with statecraft that they have an instinct that's even greater than the american public but the american public has this instinct too Mm -hmm. of like a bullshit detector about good bad strategy almost we know when it's like the pornography thing, like, you know, it when you see it, we know when we're making blunderous decisions that are going to are going to harm us at, you know, when we're already dealing with problems at home or economically insecure. Yeah. We know when something is like well considered or um, not well founded. And so that, that to me is like one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here, because it's like the perspective that you're like uncovering and surfacing for us all is a perspective that if policymakers take it more seriously, I think it could help us not do more fucking rocks, you know? Exactly. And, you know, there's a saying, um, when white America catches a cold, black America catches a flu. And that ties into what you were saying, you know, yeah, that, you know. I haven't heard that, but that's totally, yeah. (laughs) But I think that's that's real, because even when we look at unemployment rates, unemployment rates tend to hover at about double that of white America or just the national average. So you're, you're right. A lot of times when we look at the stats behind different aspects of inequalities, Black America sits at roughly double or just higher that of white Americans or other racial groups. So I think there is a acute awareness of 
if America incurs some level of economic setback from another Iraq, Afghanistan, there's like, think there's this belief, some founded, maybe somewhat unfounded, that Black America will be harmed more than the, than the economy. I mean, even we look at the financial uh, crash of, um, I think that was 07, 08. There's tons of articles about Black home ownership rates dropping uh, and, you know, being hit worse than white America. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think there's there's that belief that, yeah, Black America is going to get hit worse than other communities. Yeah, and there's certainly some data to support that. Yeah. Um, you had a uh, tailored question about, it wasn't about troops, but about the, the $40 billion military yes. aid package to Ukraine, which was... I mean, for listeners, I, I think we talked about this in an old episode, but it became notable in the first place because uh, Republicans in Congress, who are traditionally quite hawkish, they were arguing about the merits of it. And there's a segment of like sort of MAGA Republicans who was opposed to the aid package. This was contrary to like the armchair wisdom about Republicans, Democrats emerge as the consensus hawks. Um, but it's also like Putin is a case of pretty obvious naked aggression. I mean, so there's a lot to unpack there. What, what was, you know, what was the question or what did you have to find about that? You're right. You're right. So at the time when I conducted this survey, the question dealt with, yes, the $40 billion aid package that was approved. Uh, I don't remember Sometime when it was. last year. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to, you know, give the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, I think yeah. I believe now we're now at 70 some odd billion dollars. So there's definitely been, yeah, it's, more. it's, it's more now. Yeah, definitely more. So, you know, that question was a snapshot in time. I wonder how my respondents would respond to the 76 billion. Um, but yeah, so kind of going back to that question, Respondents were split. Uh, respondents, I believe it was 36% in favor of this $40 billion aid package and about 39% not in favor of the aid package. And in similar fashion to the other question about sending troops, you had a month when it comes to income. So those in the lower, um, lower economic, uh, lower SES economic bracket they had higher rates of not favoring it. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I talk about it in the article. If I can in some way maybe yeah. plug in the article later on when this just goes live. Oh yeah, you'll you'll be in the show notes. So there will be links to oh, all this stuff okay. when you wanna explore the data, no worries. Okay, we're, we're perfect, perfect. It's, it's tons of numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, the interesting thing about the aid package was it was kind of military, it was, it was a military aid package. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, you know, carbon offset tax credits or debt relief or something. It was mm -hmm. military assistance, but it just wasn't boots on the ground. So there was like a level of entanglement, but way less entanglement than you think about like running combat operations or something. Mm -hmm. Which I think in many ways speaks to why I think the average was 36% who were in favor of the aid package versus mm -hmm. only like 20% who were in favor of sending troops. And I will argue for African-Americans and other racial groups, this speaks to the fact that Americans are, are, and especially Black Americans, are more willing to, okay, we'll support with U.S. arms, wherever that means. That's somewhat of a nebulous concept. I don't think most Americans would know about HIMARS and, you know, F yeah. you know, but, you know, the nebulous concept of military aid versus we, we know what boots troops on the ground means. It, it's my cousin, it's my relative. You know, it's my child. Like that's a much more concrete idea. I think African Americans can rationalize that. That's probably why you have lower rates of support for troops than the military aid package. Yeah, and that to me signals a level of of nuanced understanding, like a, a level of geopolitical literacy that we don't attribute to the public normally. Mm -hmm. But the ability to say, like, okay, we can see that there's a bad guy here. And we have the ability to do more than nothing, but we know what happens when we get too involved. Or, you know, like we we know how the slippery slope can end up in another Vietnam or something. Yeah, that's interesting. You had too a question about like the U.S. role in the world. What was what was that? What were you finding there? That question was really interesting to me, and I think that's the one that I really want like to tease out in future surveys and just focus groups and so on and so forth. So the question was um, pulling from what a question that Chicago Council asked, except I provided a don't know option. But it was, do you think it will be best for the future of the nation if we take an active role in world affairs or stay out of world affairs? 
and a plurality. So it wasn't a majority, just a plurality of respondents. About 50, 42% said that the U.S. should take an state out of world affairs. And then there was about a quarter said don't know. And then there was it was lower, about 30% said, you know, an active part in world affairs. Now, in comparison, when you look at the Chicago Council survey, their survey, the most recent one, it was like 60% of Americans said an active part in world affairs. So a majority, I don't know if Chicago Council provided a don't know. That would skew some responses. But yeah. it's interesting to see that um, a general survey of the U.S. adult population leans towards active part, but my survey leans towards stay out. And if you were like, I can kind of, you know, theorize why I think that's the case. I was going to say, like, the the thing to unpack in the future for sure is what how do they understand staying out versus being active in the world? Because I think in our current moment, or I, this would be what you would need to confirm, I guess, but like in our current moment, we read activism abroad as military intervention because that's what American primacy has been for a generation or more, you know? Yeah. Um, and that that may be what people are reacting to, but it's hard to know. Yeah, it is hard to know. And I think that's a really good idea for, you know, future surveys to kind of really tease out like, you know, humanitarian aid or, you know, promotion of democracy or, you know, mm -hmm. military bases. So, yeah, you're right. There's so many things that go into what active part means. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's interesting seeing the plurality of respondents say stay out because I think there is a belief going. It's kind of like the through line this entire conversation is the idea that. You know, several things. In some cases, the U.S. more recently has been an imperial power. You know, and I think a lot, for a lot of people, Iraq, Afghanistan is fresh in their minds, you know, especially yeah. all, all, coming after the Afghanistan pullout. You know, the answer may be different if we didn't see the, the painful pullout out of Afghanistan. I don't know. But then also thinking about, you know, um, you have the situation in Jackson, Mississippi uh, with the water. You have Flint, Michigan, and then you know, you see we're on the heels of George Floyd and other police brutality aspects, you know. So, I mean, with all of that, some African-Americans may be thinking, you know, why have an active part trying to make the world a better place and turn the world into a utopia when, you know, one of the United States' oldest ethnic groups is languishing right here, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of I'm curious about the, the party dimension of, of this us in the world attitude thing like yeah. the democratic party has become very militarily interventionist to the point where some neocons have been leaving the gop to become like biden democrats but the democratic party also like you mentioned i mean almost uniformly the black community lines up as democrats and oh, yeah. the so the democratic party hawkishness seems incongruous with a democratic party that's also the the home to african americans what do you make of that tension i mean and do you do you think that tension is sustainable yeah and i i actually try to tease that out in the in the article because that's what was really striking to me and the atlantic has a really good article that talks about the rise of the liberal hawks you know like yes i saw that yeah, the hawkishness of the Democratic Party. And in large part, the, you know, African-Americans have not always voted, you know, Democrat for a long time. African-Americans voted for the Republican Party, you know, pre, you know, early 20th century. And the yeah. shift in part happened because of the Democratic Party's attention to domestic issues and domestic programs. And in large part, that, that kind of facilitated the shift of African-Americans to the Democratic Party. So it's interesting, you know, um, seeing how the Democratic Party has le or Democratic leadership has really rethought about the U.S.'s role in the world, um, especially in the war on Ukraine. And I would argue that I would say that that doesn't necessarily translate to how African-Americans, from what my survey is showing, are thinking about the U.S. military intervention and the role of the U.S. military. Um, I don't think it's really translated. I think it's actually important, and the reason why I will argue it's important that it's at least addressed is because it's in small part, it's not a major shift, but you do have um, data that kind of supports the argument that some African Americans are shifting towards the Republican Party. Primarily African American men, um, um, the midterm election, there's actually was an article, I even link it in my article, but there was an article that talked about how the Democratic Party is concerned 
because the number of African-Americans who voted in the midterms dipped. And also, too, you have a shift, especially in the election for Trump in, what was that, 2020? African-Americans, it wasn't anything major, but I think it went from like 8%, 6 8% of Black Republicans to like 11%. So there's like a subtle shift. Um, so yeah, I will argue that um, for both parties, and more so the Democratic Party, they should probably really think about trying to engage African-American voters for, well, this is why we're taking the hawkish view on Ukraine. I'm not saying it's the right or the wrong view, but maybe yeah. try to just make that more lucid to African-American voters. So this is interesting. This this shift in the wrong, or I won't say wrong direction. To me, it's the wrong direction. But the shift of uh, African-Americans away from the Democratic Party, it brings up a question that is askew of your survey, but it's just on theme and it's on my mind. It's been on my mind, actually. Mm-hmm. Kanye West, yee. So like, he's a super influencer, yeah. but it's not clear to me who he's super influencing exactly. Because like a lot of the shit he says it goes against the interests of anyone on the margins or the periphery of society increasingly, but he wasn't always that way. I mean, he used to be part of the conscious rap scene. Um, I don't, I don't know what to make of him. I guess the question, like, what do you make of, of the Kanye phenomenon in politics of like the super influencer, but also do you think he moves votes? And do you think he moves Black American votes? Mm, yeah, I mean, so whew, that's a whole other can of worms. But yeah, I, <laughs> it's I'll, a lot there. But... It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely try to unpack it. I think it's several things. I think we what we're looking at, even when it comes to the African American community, we have plenty of intellectuals, plenty of well-read individuals who have well-informed takes on politics. But in many cases, you know, um, media outlets turn to our celebrities um, and give them uh, the mic and like to hear their points of view. So even though this is somewhat of a tangent, but Kanye's anti-Semitism and his comments about, you know, slavery was a choice. I will argue that that does not represent a large part or significant part of the African-American community. But, you know, for some reason, and we can unpack that later on, um, individuals like that are given the platform and, you know, um, that those viewpoints are widely disseminated. Um, versus yeah. some really, you know, well-informed African-American scholars, uh, men and women, who I think can give well-founded critiques of um, U.S. politics. But then to answer your question, um, well, before I even go into that, like my other issue, like, for example, when you had, um, like, Joe Biden sat on The Breakfast Club. I mean, that's not, I mean, I'm, and that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing, but there's Roland Martin's podcast. Like, there's so many podcasts that I feel like Joe Biden could have sat down and talked with to talk to yeah. you know, African-American intellectuals, thought leaders. But he sits down with the Breakfast Club. I mean, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, but Don't I bring up Hillary's hot sauce thing. Yeah, you know, Hillary's <laughs> hot sauce or even when Kamala Harris sat down with the Breakfast Club. And I'm not saying that the Breakfast Club shouldn't be able to have these people come on their talk show. Them, but yeah. there's plenty of other people who can even give pushback, you know can, you know, uh, bring these, uh, our elected officials to task on certain issues. Um, mm-hmm. But beyond that, to answer your question, do I think Kanye has mass reach? Um, I think to a certain degree, let's, let's be honest, I think he kind of does, you know. Um, I mean, this by proxy of his music. Um, in the past, he's made in really good music and he's garnered a really large following. I'm not going to say that I think he's really swaying people to thinking that, what did he say? Hitler wasn't really a bad guy. Slavery was a choice. I'm not going to say that he's swaying that. He's, he's like, a, you know, a major change agent. But yes, people, yeah. are, I think, are listening to him, you know. Um, but um, I don't know if it's, I think some people, I think people can parse through like, okay, something's not right here with these thoughts. Yeah, I mean, he's there, there's clearly a mental health dimension. Yes. And, um, yes. Do you think, though, that, I mean, we can't prove this, but do you think that he was a causal factor in this subtle shift that you detected in the midterms and in 2020? Mm. Or I guess it was 2020 more than the midterms, but of of the shift away from the Democratic Party slightly. Yeah, really good question. I think he was a shift. Um, I think it's a lot. I mean, I think even Stacey Abrams tried to address this. I think to a certain degree, you have the African-American African American men in particular feeling 
uh, becoming somewhat disillusioned. Even the African American community, there's been a growing sentiment of being disillusioned with the Democratic Party. You know, African Americans, yeah. by and large, regardless of gender, have been voting uh, uh, religiously for the Democratic Party. Um, and then we, and then there is a growing, you know, sentiment amongst African American communities. Use for example, the crime bill. You know, with Biden, the '94 crime bill. You know, when you have, um, you have, you know, African American community voting for the Democratic Party, and you still have the ramifications of ghettoization that happened in the '60s, '70s, '80s. Um, you have, you know, the famous book, um, The New Jim Crow by Leslie Alexander. Um, and I think what we're somewhat seeing is across the community, a certain level of disillusionment with the party. Um, and I think you have some who just in general are like, I'm going to go independent or I just won't vote at all. And I think what you kind of see is when you see the numbers slightly etching upward of black Republicans, is some African-Americans who are like, I still want my voice to be heard, but I feel like to a certain degree, the Republican Party, especially under Trump, is kind of capturing my sentiments. You know, the views on immigration. Um, and then also, too, to a certain degree, we could try, we could possibly attribute it to um, patriarchy. In many ways, you might have, you know, Black men who are subscribed. Mm, gender, yeah. G yeah, gender, patriarchal norms, and the feeling like it's being fully captured by, you know, the Trump campaign or Trump administration or, you know, um, the MAGA party. Um, and that can somewhat capture my sentiment. So to answer your question, I think, I think Kanye may, I think Kanye is probably a symptom of the larger disillusionment with the democratic party after voting for the party decade, election after election, after election. That's a, that's a much better way to put it. That's, that's a great way to think. Like it's whether he's a, a causal factor or not, it's more that, the more meaningful observation is that he's a symptom of a larger alienation yeah. from this establishment party that great answer, man. Um, <laughs> I know I said a whole lot there. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Is there any, any like unspent rounds here? Article on the war on terror. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I could gloss over it. Um, let's see. So that's the, the interest, the results were pretty on par with, other surveys that were conducted african americans are split on the decision to invade afghanistan oh, invade iraq um most americans not, not split they lean more towards it was a bad idea to invade iraq yeah yeah um but african americans are split on the decision to invade afghanistan similar to some other surveys that were conducted by yougov um but i asked an interesting question and hopefully other you know places like pew would probably ask the same question as well but I asked my respondents, do you think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan benefited America? And do you think they benefited your family? So only like 16% said they thought the wars benefited America. Close to like 60% were saying that the wars did not benefit the country. Um, and when I asked them why, and those who were in the, it did not, those were like, it, most people said weaker economy. So most of my respondents, you know, believe that you know they didn't benefit the country because the economy got weaker um whether or not that's true or not you know i don't know but i think you know when you have articles that come out about the trillions of dollars being spent and then you have the economic downturn of you know the late 2000s that can in some way you know influence our sentiments but then i also ask do you think the war benefited your family the numbers went down even lower like only like eight percent said the wars benefited their family and the only people, the only demographic that really had like a slightly higher tick of yes were veterans, which was a small sample size. I only had like maybe like 30 veterans or, or well, veterans of those wars, maybe more clear. Um, veterans only had like 30 veterans of those wars and Republicans, black Republicans. It was like 30 percent of them said that the war benefited their family. But black Democrats were at like nine percent. But once so once again, like those impressions. I think are accurate. Like there's, there's a bunch of like political economy research about how the deficit financing basis for military primacy, how going back to the seventies, but like, especially around the time of the global financial crisis on a, as a pattern the we, because we don't raise taxes and we don't cut social spending in order to fund wars. Most of the time, the result is that it has to be deficit financed. And that means bringing in foreign capital, and so we're this giant like sucking machine of of foreign capital from the rest of the world, and that deep concentration of foreign capital investment becomes uh, the basis of like um, imbalances in the economy. 
here and and uh, globally, mm-hmm. and then that cre- that's what creates asset bubbles, and that's what creates these like mm-hmm. high risk financial products. You're trying to make use of the these funds that are coming in and have the investment mm-hmm. vehicles. It's so, like it's a there's a longer story there, but like there's a, yeah. a quantifiable sort of observation that military primacy, political economy of it actually does create financial crises that disproportionately end up impacting, yeah. you know, African-American communities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, and then they're, they're seeing that, like they're reporting that back. It's what you're capturing. Yeah. Here. So I think that was a really interesting question, um, which in many ways I think says a lot, you know, what kind of also loops all the way back around to you know, what African-Americans be willing to serve or send troops to uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. or Taiwan and it also loops back to this very favorable sense of the military because I think African Americans view the military as being they're favorable. They view it in a positive light um, because the military can provide benefits, like we talked about earlier, but not necessarily a favorableness of the military for like waging war. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what you do. You got to have good judgment so like about how war. you use it. Is the thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's my two cents on that survey. If there's anything else that we'd like for me to talk about, I think I think that's I think we hit the high points for sure. Yeah, this has been great, man. I'll I'll put the links to both pieces in the show notes. So the first was called okay. what was it? How Black Americans feel about the possible use of military force in Ukraine and Taiwan, and then the one the other one is yeah. uh, how Black Americans feel about the war on terror, which is not good. Yes. Um, I mean. How they feel. The piece is very good. Uh, yes. So, yeah. That me, yeah. All right, man. Um, this was great. Thank you. Yeah, we'll stay in touch. This is this was awesome. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, all right. Thank you. Thanks, man. I really appreciate all right, it. Too. All right. Take care.